Nobody looked after us. Nobody seemed to care about us. We were short of food and short of water. And uh, nobody worried to neck about us. Could have had some guns. There'd have been godsend. Find a few guns of the Turks that could have moved and taken trenches and goodness knows what. But uh, as far as we just sat there, the Turks 30 yards away and uh, firing each other all day and all night. Well, they always had the higher ground. They always had the better position. See, they owned the women land. We came in there, took what we could get. Hello, hello, welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. As ever, I am your host, Catherine. SDRA Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com. The fifth book in the Full Contact series is so close to being done. My target when I first started this was that I was going to get it out by my birthday, which is eight days away from the date of me recording this. So, very, very excited. Maybe this will happen, this will happen soon, but if you like the sound of a full written context guide, go on Amazon, search up the full context, and you will find the written notes to everything that I do in book form. And this one has got like 12 pages of references, so you know it is good. You can look on YouTube, you can see my face doing the context videos behind a heck of a lot of the poems and texts that we are doing. And I'm writing this, I wrote this, I mean I'm recording this, I'm literally just forgetting my words. On the 25th day of my COVID lockdown, I'm going a little bit crackers. Uh, Me and my partner built a birdhouse to try and give some premium real estate to the local waterfowl. But every Thursday at 4.30pm, I'm going to be doing a special live podcast on YouTube Live simultaneously with my Twitter live and I'm going to be giving you some uh, cool context stuff and things to get you through the week so remember 4.30 Thursday YouTube live if you miss it no big deal it's going to be up on my YouTube channel afterwards right let's get into this bad boy today we are tackling bayonet charge by Ted Hughes the voice you heard at the I do not have a name for that guy, he is unnamed. But he is an Anzac veteran talking about his experiences in the conflict known today as Gallipoli. Gallipoli is actually incredibly important to our story and this is kind of a weird, rambling, long story that goes a lot of places, so bear with me. Alright, alright, before we get into Gallipoli... Let's talk about bayonets, first of all. Bayonets, for people who don't know, it's like a knife you stick on the end of a rifle. So you've got your pointy rifle, you stick a knife on the end of it. The idea is that it's close quarters fighting. It's not like you can snipe someone from ages and ages away. You can actually get up close and personal. It's kind of like a last resort thing like ideally we would be able to fight people without it but in this 
this case, our character in Bayonet Charge is absolutely going for it. Gallipoli, as I'm going to get on to, we have major uses of bayonets. But weirdly, the bayonet has kind of a British Imperial connotation with back to sign of four in the last season i'm quoting from an expert called peter monteith from flinders university here in britain and all her dominions the so-called pattern 1907 bayonet was preferred over the centuries the fundamentals of the bayonet had barely changed the pattern too consisted of a blade a guard without a cross piece a muzzle ring and a wooden hilt Along much of the length of the blade ran a groove, a fuller. It reduced the weight of the weapon, allowed air to pass into the wound, making it easier to extract the blade. Most of the standard weapons of the Empire's army, including the bayonet, were manufactured in-house, Britain, Australia and India. These are the standard issue things given to all Imperial troops. There is a bit of a drawback to using a bayonet. There is a bit of a drawback to using a bayonet though. You're more likely to poke or stab um, one of your own side because they're kind of pointy. But we've also got to think of the psychology of using this. It's one thing teaching someone how to shoot a rifle in order to kill but with your bayonets you've got to be taught to lunge thrust and parry you've got to be taught how to stab well in a lot of the training it's a sack of sawdust but they've got the parts marked on them as weak or vulnerable some people would practice in an abattoir or in like a meat locker but i'm back to our expert again he says confidence in the use of the bayonet would give infantry the courage to advance from their positions and confront the enemy directly they developed what was some called the spirit of the bayonet more crudely it was a lust for blood though the statistics insisted it was unlikely the bayonet would be cause of death it was crucial because it engendered in its bearer the desire to advance and kill which if that's what you're aiming for our speaker does not have that so who was ted hughes basing his speaker on there's a couple of candidates his dad is a good one William Henry Hughes I'm quoting here from Elaine Feinstein's biography of Ted Hughes he was one of only 17 survivors of a whole regiment of the Lancashire Fusiliers who'd been slaughtered at Gallipoli and in Ted's memory he was so shattered by his experience he remained reluctant to speak of it even when other soldiers were exchanging stories photos show William looking jolly enough and Ted recalls that his laugh had indeed survived nearly intact despite all those memories of soldiers slithering about in the mud but nightmares kept calling him out of his sleep William had been a brave soldier carrying back injured men from the front line many times until he collapsed with exhaustion winning the distinguished conduct medal for his heroism he was wounded several times once in the ankle by machine gun fire was only saved from being hit in the heart by his paybook which stopped a bit of shrapnel he was fortunate to survive another occasion when a shell failed to go off as it buried itself 
between his feet. Men from every part of the valley in Yorkshire where Ted Hughes grew up had died in those battlefields and sometimes an entire street of families lost their sons through a mistaken order to advance. Ted could never escape the sense of a whole region in mourning for the First World War. In later life he refused to wear a poppy on Remembrance Day. Ted's vision of trench warfare, the ugliness of the landscape and the helplessness of those trapped within it came from the stories of other veterans including his uncle Walter who found himself cursed by a German prisoner before going up the line only to be hit by a bullet in the groin. So the most likely candidate we've got for this young soldier, and he is young, the khaki roar seems, always seems to me to be someone wearing clothes the wrong size. Like if you're wearing skinny jeans and they rub a bit, like I don't know if you've got chub rub or you're trying to squeeze into a size too small, or Back in the day, in the 90s, when people used to wear them baggy skater jeans, if it's the wrong size, it's gonna hurt. And I always get this image of this, like, little person in, like, a grown-up's uniform. So, what's the deal? Okay, I really, I feel like I want to do this in a Seinfeld voice. What's the deal with Gallipoli? Alright. It's kind of a weird one for me. Um, I mean, I'm sure I've mentioned this enough times. My partner is half Australian, half Italian. And for Australians, Gallipoli is kind of a big deal in a way that we in the UK don't really get. Like, our equivalent, I think, would be Charge of the Light Brigade pointless thing in which a lot of people needlessly died. Even though there were Brits serving in Gallipoli, it has like a special place in the Australian cultural memory. And if you're over in Australia for Anzac Day, it is kind of a big deal. Also, we have the Anzac Memorial just next to Hyde Park. So if you wish to lay a wreath for some Anzacs, or you know someone who does, we have a memorial. Gallipoli is a place. I mean, well done. Well done there, <laughs> Catherine. <laughs> it's totally pointless. It was felt by the British command that Turkey might access the rest of the war through the Mediterranean. So World War One, Turkey, not on the allied side they're the bad guys they are gonna sweep round through the mediterranean get to the bottom of france oh no turkey's also separated by germany and a bunch of other places geographically so we don't want the other side to be able to sweep round by sea in reality it wasn't actually that important and kind of wasn't a thing but anyway a bunch of troops were sent in to capture this strategic point even though at this point the australia and new zealand are not part of the uk they've achieved federation and independence a great deal of the troops are Australian, we've called them in, we've got the Brits, we've got everyone. So imagine like a cereal bowl, <laughs> but with a chunk cut out of it. And that's what Gallipoli looks like. And I mean, I, you can tell where I'm going with this, right? So the troops land on the beach, you go into the middle of the cereal bowl, except Turkish machine gunners are all on top of the cereal bowl and 
can just pick you off. Right, right, right. It's, it's, yeah, it's just like a ridiculous, unnecessary slaughter that's kind of awful. Right, this clip is a little bit long, but I feel like it's just a really nice story. Let's hear from this guy called Alec Campbell. He is billed as being the last Anzac and he was one of the last, one of the oldest survivors when he was interviewed of Gallipoli. Take a few minutes and let's listen to what this guy has to say. There were rumours of war coming out, you know. And then we heard war was declared. Then Australia, of course, was in it too, because England was in it. Uh, I don't know if they do that today. And uh, I enlisted. I went to Egypt. Uh, from Egypt, we went to Gallipoli. I was uh, 16 when I left school and enlisted. I was, uh, I suppose I was 17 on Gallipoli. You don't look for reasons why I did this, you just did it. And I think one thing most young fellows were going, I don't think they realised what the war was, uh, you know, until, uh, until afterwards. I just went up and went into the recruiting office and, uh, you know, put myself in as a, as a recruit. And uh, they were... After men, so they. Uh, I was young and not very big, but I was strong. I said I was 18. We did rifle shooting, and we did marching, and not 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 much training really. Get you in really decent physical nick, because they'd be running in the morning and. Uh, doing exercises but there's nothing over strenuous or it's all a bit of an adventure at that age i just left school you see 16 it doesn't seem to matter much you know you don't a little bit older you'd think more seriously about it i think i came through gallipoli where a lot of uh, more mature people didn't. It, was a, it wasn't a good place to serve at all. I suppose you weren't frightened, but you were, you were aware of, uh, you know, people were getting uh, um, bowled over pretty often. Uh, in our company, I suppose, uh, while I was there, we had half of them hit. There was a, a fellow in the boat coming ashore with us, was hit and it, it, it rather shocked me in a way I'd, I'd not, never seen a man killed before. You, you realise what's going on uh, when you're in amongst it. Um, it mightn't be frightening but it uh, puts you on your toes. It's all a jumble, you know, there was Hill 60, I remember as we went off, uh, looking back at Hill 60 and there was a, a pair of legs sticking out from a bush. They were just ditches, uh, 
down deep and bits of shelters put over the way you could um, and you kept in them as long as you could. You didn't like going out because you're likely to get hit when you are moving from place to place. But in the trench you are fairly safe, you see. The trenches there were not as, uh, as deep and uh, as unpleasant as the French trenches uh, because we, uh, we could go down to the beach and uh, although people got hit sometimes going down, but there was a, a track from where we were down to, to the beach. There's nothing to stop us except uh, stray rifle fire. Yes, I, I suppose you were aware that you could get killed any time, but you're not, uh, you couldn't do anything about it. Uh, you were there and that was all. Bombs thrown over were, were dangerous, but they never hit me. Um, but they hit plenty of other people. A named Pritchard was shot and killed. Um, it was a bit of a surprise. Uh, you know, when you're young, you, you take uh, those sort of shocks m much more easily than you, you do when you're growing up, I think. I came off in, in the evacuation day. We left very early in the morning. I had a, oh, four or five months in hospital. I weighed about eight stone, I think. Egypt and the islands, Cairo, they're all exciting places, you know, for, for uh, a 16-year-old who had never really been out of Tasmania before. It was a, a fairyland. I suppose we had some sort of a an idea that was to to protect Australia and 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 in a way England because we used to think a lot more of England in those days than we do now um, because we hadn't seen so much of it I suppose after Gallipoli I thought it'd be nice to get out of it it's a pleasant enough place in peacetime um, you see this last time I went over it uh, it didn't seem that the horrible place that it had been when we were when we were fighting there. Another soldier who was there, who I've actually featured in my book as well because he's at, he's really awesome, is called Joe Gasparic or Gasparic, G A S P A R I C H. He was an officer in the ANZACs. That's the Australia New Zealand Auxiliary Corps. Or Army Corps. Oh gosh, I should know that. He is talking about setting up and fighting in what he called the Daisy Patch. The Daisy Patch was a smaller area. Uh, oh, I suppose an acre, an acre and a half in extent or more. And the daisies were thick everywhere. And that's where we made that run across, the famous run. Now, my recollection of that is very vivid because I was hit and I dropped. And in spite of the situation at that time, in spite of the fact that I'd been hit 
in spite of all that, I got an absolute thrill out of watching the men come. Now, to me, it was the most foolish thing that ever could happen. It was absolute murder or suicide, whichever way you like to look at it. We were digging in all the afternoon in the blazing sun, under fire all the time, and losing men all the time. And then the order came, the line, whole line will advance at 5.30. All of a sudden, up they went, the line, off you go, and off these fellows went. When I saw these fellows go, I grabbed my tunic, pulled it on, grabbed my web equipment, pulled it on. But after I was hit, I sat down, and uh, of the crowd who went over, the majority got over to this, to these bushes and low watercourses, you see, where we could get down behind shelter and get up, and there we began to build a firing line and to fire a jacko, who was nicely entrenched somewhere about a hundred yards ahead of us. And here were his trenches on the side, and he'd built them at his leisure. They were all sandbagged, and they had overhead cover and everything else, and loopholes to fire through. And we had to fire these loopholes, and he had us out in the open, and he had his machine guns and that sort of thing, too. Well, after a little while, when I sat there, another line of our chaps got up to follow us, according to their orders. I suppose there would be about, in that particular line, about 40 men would start to run across to where we are to join us, where we were. And every one dropped. Every one dropped. Just think of it. Well, after an interval, believe it or not, another line got up to follow them, to come over to help us where we were, to build up our strength. And every man in that lot dropped. I watched them. And believe it or not, a third lot got up. Somewhere about the same number, 30 to 40 men. Two men, I noticed, they ran about 10 yards, 15 and they suddenly turned around, they ran back and dropped in the holes they'd come out of. They were the sensible ones. One man got across, and he was hit. He staggered across. Every other man was dropped. That was the daisy patch. That was the daisy patch. All right, so these are the kind of stories that our brethren, Ted Hughes, is growing up with. You can already see, like, I mean, I'm of an age where I remember my granddad's war stories. My grandfather served in the Navy in the Pacific Theatre, and hearing those kind of stories, they seem kind of exciting. The vibe is always like, oh, that's a really cool story, that's really exciting. And then you step back a bit and you're like, oh, God, this is awful. And it's that one step back. And that's where Hughes is with this. The other thing to remember is that he really, really, really loves animals. As a kid, Ted Hughes loved the Jungle Book. He was a massive fan of Wordsworth, William Wordsworth on the comeback. And because it's Yorkshire in the 30s and apparently people don't really have a concept of child safety just running around all over the countryside wherever he felt like it. Now this is a weirdly big deal. It's the next one. Bear with me on this. He got a book of Irish fairy tales which were written down by excellent poet William Butler Yeats. He was given this by his school and 
he loved it. It sparked this interest in mythology that he carried with him his whole life. Uh, story's quite short. I'm going to read it to you. One of the stories features a hare, H-A-R-E, the same kind of chunky bunny rabbit, which is in our poem. And it turns out the hare is kind of important. I'm not going to try and do the accent because I think that counts as a hate crime. But there you go. This is what Yates has to say about hares in this book that really inspired Hughes. I was out thracking hares myself and I seen a fine puss of a thing hopping, hopping in the moonlight and whacking her ears about, now up, now down and winking her great eyes and here goes says i and the thing was so close to me that she turned around and looked at me and then bounced back as well to say do your worst so i had the least grain of life of blessed powder left and i put it in the gun and then bang at her my jewel the script she gave would frighten a rigment i I think that's regiment regiment and a mist like came betwixt me and her and i seen her no more but when the mist went off i saw blood on the spot where she'd been and i followed its track and at last it led me whist whisper right up to katie mcshane's door and when i was at the threshold i heard a murmuring within a great murmuring and a groaning and i opened the door and there she was herself sitting quite content in the shape of a woman and the black cat that was sitting by her rose up its back and spit at me but i went on never heeding and i asked the old so and so how she was and what ailed her nothing says she what's that on the floor says i oh she says i was cutting a billet of wood she says with the reaping hook she says and i've wounded myself in the leg she says and that's the drops in my precious blood she says spooky ghost story so hares according to irish mythology are female shapeshifters much like in that story where he accidentally shoots the rabbit and then it's actually his friend katie they are witches or spirits who can shift between female form and bunny form so why is there a hair in a poem well we've got a sense of the magical we've got a sense of a feminine in this homosocial masculine environment it's war it's all male but we have a sense of something female there is it his mum is it some kind of witch or spirit or fairy watching over him well might be it's nice isn't it i asked my mother-in-law who is fairly knowledgeable about paganism i asked her whether there was any like pagan symbolism to the rabbit or the hare and she told me that symbolically it's new life it's renewal so the old year has gone the new year is here and we see this renewal of baby bunnies so is the rabbit reflecting his youth is it an optimistic sign is it like he's going to die but actually there will be a rebirth maybe he'll survive it's a bit mysterious but since we're going on on this mythology kick and honestly in my show notes for the next bit i just wrote 
it's dot 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 kinda mental. <laughs> so another book Hughes got given uh, when he was at school and he got really really obsessed with it at university is a book called The White Goddess. So Hughes went to Cambridge as a lot of our famous writers did and he became aware of this thing called the British class system <laughs> which apparently he hadn't been aware of and he became very much aware of his own working class backgrounds but much as I did actually because I was the only kid that I knew at university who went to like a normal school who didn't go to like fancy pants prep with the school hat you know so I can relate to him on this but one of the, re- one of the ways he challenged he channeled this was to get really into his mythology and his poetry so we're back to the white goddess the full title is the white goddess a historical grammar of poetic myth which is written by famous war poet robert graves published in 48 graves himself is an awesome awesome poet read his poem called rain as a war poem and again if i was allowed to choose the uh if i was allowed to choose the syllabus i would put that in because i think i'd do a better job so graves decided that he was going to write a theory of mythology based on paganism and that was super feminist he said that all religions actually worship the same deity who is not the christian version of god with capital g he called this deity the white goddess she combines the powers of love destruction but she also creates poetic inspiration as soon as she was deposed by the patriarchal gods so male gods poetry became more academic so we've got emotion and love replaced by logic but true poetry came about when the white goddess was believed in again by the romantics and the best poets the only ones capable of writing poetry according to graves continue to worship her and are honored with her gifts of poetic insight i in no way <laughs> in no way do i use the word mental lightly um just my own a little crib note my own uses on it um someone who has a mental health condition or a disorder does not fall under my definition of crazy because you can have a mental health condition and just be living your best life just go doctor sometimes crazy is someone who decides to have three shots of tequila before dinner crazy is someone who decides rather than pay rent buys shoes crazy is me when i realized it was cheaper to buy tesco's puddings than the rest of my shopping and aged 18 lived on puddings for a week that is the definition of crazy nothing to do with the medical thing and this is the world of crazy so as i can see you are intrigued let me read you (laughs) some of the white goddess which inspired ted hughes strap yourself in 
The theme, briefly, is the antique story, which falls into 13 chapters and an epilogue. Of the birth, life, death and resurrection of the God of the Waxing Year, the central chapters concern the God's losing battle with the God of the Waning Year. For love, the capricious and all-powerful threefold goddess, the mother, the bride and the layer out. Now this is, but pulls for a sec, the Wiccan belief in the threefold goddess, the maiden, the mother, the crone. Pretty well accepted among Wiccans. But this is in 48, so this is quite like a hardcore revolutionary point of view. The poet identifies himself with the god of the waxing year and his, mu his muse with the goddess. The rival is his blood brother, his other self, his weird. All true poetry, true by Hausmann's practical test, celebrate some incident or scene in this very ancient story. And the three main characters are so much a part of our racial inheritance. Alright, alright, I... I any text that uses the words racial inheritance is walking a line here. But anyway. They assert themselves in poetry but recur on occasions of emotional stress in the form of dreams, paranoiac visions and delusions. The weird or rival often appears in nightmares as the tall, lean, dark-faced bedside spectre or prince of the air who tries to drag the dreamer out through the window so he looks back and sees his body lying rigid in bed, but he takes countless other malevolent or diabolic or serpent-like forms. The goddess is a lovely slender woman with a hooked nose, deathly pale face, lips red as rowan berries, startling blue eyes and long fair hair. She will suddenly transform herself into sow, mare, bitch, a female dog, vixen, she-ass, weasel, serpent, owl, she-wolf, tigress, mermaid or loathsome hag. Her names and titles are innu innumerable. In ghost stories, she often figures as the White Lady and in ancient religions from British Isles to the Caucasus as the White Goddess. I cannot think of any true poet from Homer onwards who has not independently recorded his experience of her. The test of a poet's vision, one might say, is the accuracy in his portrayal of the White Goddess and of the island over which she rules. The reasons why hairs stand on end, the eyes water, the throat is constricted, the skin crawls and a shiver runs down the spine when one reads or writes a true poem. Is it a true poem? It's necessarily an invocation of the white goddess or muse, the mother of all living, the ancient power of fright and lust, the female spider or the queen bee whose embrace is death. Alright, 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 I, I can't get through this. Alright, your throat's constricted, your eyes are watering, your skin's crawling. Mate, that's called allergies. Like, I get that if I'm too close to cheap perfume and I don't think that's a sign of divinity. Alright, cool. Hausmann often offered a secondary test of true poetry, whether it matches a phrase of Keats's, everything that reminds me of her goes through me like a spear. This is equal pertinent to the theme. Keats was writing under the shadow of death about his muse and the spear that roars for blood is a traditional weapon of the dark executioner and supplanter. Sometimes in reading a poem, the hairs will bristle with an apparently unpeopled and eventless scene described in it. If the elements bespeak her unseen presence clearly enough. For example, when owls hoot, the moon rides like a ship through scudding cloud. Trees sway slowly together above a rushing waterfall. The distant barking of dogs is heard, or when the peal of bells in frosty weather sometimes announces the birth of the new year. This is what Hughes is reading for fun when he's 18. I was 18 when the last Harry Potter book came out. Alright, I am never going to be a great poet. I'm alright with that. So, is the hair 
a manifestation of the pagan white goddess. It's not implausible, actually. It's, it's not that weird. This kind of mythology, nature red in tooth and claw fight, came out in Hughes's first collection, which was called Hawk Roosting. And this poem is in one, is in this collection, but it's the odd one out. Every other poem is about an animal. Like there's a fox, there's a hawk, uh, I think there's an otter. I haven't read all of them, I'm not a big fan of Hughes. So, putting it out there, is this a poem about a rabbit which seems to have a soldier in it? I'm weirdly thinking, yes, I think this is a poem about a rabbit which has a soldier featured in it. Once again, I think everything that we teach and learn is wrong. And I don't know if I've got the lockdown hysterics, but the more I've been reading about this rabbit, the more I'm like, oh my god, it's a bunny poem. <laughs> my days. So this is another one written while the poet is relatively young, a first collection. So the same as Mew, Owen, Browning. Oh god, blooming all of them. Like, um, what's his face? Seamus Heaney. Weirdly, I was looking at my book on my desk, which is about Seamus Heaney, and I was like, why can't I remember that name? It's always the first collection. It's always a young man. So at the time of writing as well, uh, Ted Hughes had just married his wife, Sylvia Plath. He is in quite, like, a good place in his life, and he's sort of experimenting with this idea of brutality versus civilization this idea of are we animals are we people are we automatons or robots so that's the end strictly of this story but if you want to take this further iron <laughs> ted hughes's book iron man which has since been renamed as iron giant and there's a movie about it fantastic like weird ecological fairy tale i use it quite a lot as a good extract to get kids going with a bit of fiction analysis and um, he gets more ecological as he gets older he gets weirder about his mythology and does a bunch in translation his wife sylvia plath sadly completes suicide her book the bell jar is one i cannot read without crying i have to stop i've read it once i don't know if i can put myself through that again it is the most harrowing book about the female experience of mental illness it's possible to have it was felt that hughes played a role in her death not by like you know not by doing a murder but um putting her in an abusive state where she was forced to consider suicide however he was exonerated a couple of years ago when a lot of their letters were published so when i did my first series and i did my first brief look at analyzing the poems i um i was very much pro sylvia team sylvia hughes is a terrible man but between those series he's been exonerated so 
Sorry, Ted, for all them things I've said about you. He was also really freakishly tall, bucking the trend of our poets being on average about 5'5", five five, being quite small, guys. I mean, not a lot of love for our short kings, obviously, but um, he choose freakishly tall just to buck the trend. So, there you go. This concludes our triplet of explicitly first world war poems that goes exposure poppies and bayonet there you go a little bit a little bit of first world war Dunsky. so str8 talk english on twitter straighttalkenglish.com youtube straight talking english be there thursdays four for a live cast i'm doing a little bit of detective story this week who was ozymandias well you're gonna find out you might have already heard the episode for that one but it's gonna be pretty good live cast on the old youtube simultaneously on the twitter amazon full context series click on it they're really really good if you've liked this show today if you've enjoyed my utter despair at having to read robert graves patreon slash straight talking english for as little as pound a month you can support my show top tier subscribers can commission me to write an essay or podcast on their choice though i don't know if i should be saying this undercutting myself over the summer i'm going to be running another ama season so if you have a question about literature that you are like wow i wish i knew that thing keep it in your head get in contact it's gonna be pretty good thank you very much for listening as ever big love big hearts value your bunnies and your friends stay safe in the lockdown and i will speak to you all very very soon